0: Episode 57 The sun burns bright for January and deep green grass and washed clean streets while the river runs angrily to the cove. Greetings and welcome in to the Patuxent General. I am your host, Jess. This week we have a super hearty bacon cheddar jalapeno scone, a refreshing cranberry cocktail, and from local folklore, curses. Places, things, and from beyond the grave. Creepy. But first, I really must thank our Patreon subscribers. These well-hydrated folks are the rushing current, gentle fall of rocks, climbing fish, elegant bridge, and fragrant breeze of the river that we call the Patuxent General without whom we would be a dry bed. So thank you. And if you would like to become one of these life-giving streams, check out our page on Patreon.com or simply follow the link in the show notes. But until then, let's talk about cranberries and then a savory scone. When local berries are out of season, around here you can still turn to cranberries. They can be found frozen, jarred, canned, and sometimes still fresh. If you add them to late-season apples, you could have pie, crumbles, stuffing for chicken, or pumpkin, or even a refreshing drink. In 1672, John Jocelyn tells us in New England's Rarities Discovered, Cranberry or bearberry, because the bears use much to feed upon them, is a small trailing plant that grows in salt marshes that are overgrown with moss. The berries are of a pale yellow color, afterward red, as big as a cherry, sometimes perfectly round, others oval. All of them hollow with a sour, astringent taste. They are ripe in August and September. The natives in the English use them, much boiling them with sugar for sauce to eat with their meat. And it is a delicate sauce, especially for roasted mutton. Some make tarts with them as gooseberries. That was 1672. How about some cranberry juice cocktail, homemade-style? Tasty and good for you right now. For this teetotaling recipe, you will need one quart of cranberries, two cups sugar, two cups boiling water, and a fresh herb bouquet. Boil the berries, sugar, and water together until the berries are soft. Strain and then press out the rest of the juice. Add a fresh herb bouquet of lemon thyme, lemon balm, hyssop, and burn it. Boil five more minutes, remove the herbs, and chill. If you don't have access to those herbs, you could use one lemon balm tea bag the same way. This is best over ice. Or pour half a glass full of soda water, a perfect dry January treat. But let's just say you want a little something to wet your whistle. You could add two ounces of chilled vodka and a nice squeeze of lime, and then you have a Cape cotter. Enjoy either way. During the winter in Patuxent Village, it can get slow. Folks stay home a bit more. And when they do come into the bakery, they want something that'll stick to their ribs through all that snow shoveling and ice chipping. It occurred to me that a savory scone may be what fit the bill. Something salty, some heat, some crunch, and some cheese. The bacon cheddar jalapeno scone can be served cut in half, toasted with a sunny-up egg on top of each side, made only more epic with bacon and melted cheese sauce or sausage gravy. Even simply toasted or just in your hand, they are lovely and are the star of the old cafe's winter routine. If you can't make it to our pop-up general store, you can make these yourself. Preheat your oven to 400 degrees. For this recipe, you will need one half pound unsalted butter chilled and cubed, three and three quarter cups of flour, three quarter cups of cornmeal coarse, two and one half teaspoons of baking powder, 1 one third of a cup of sugar, one teaspoon baking soda, one half tablespoon cracked red pepper. Two large jalapenos, seeded and chopped small. I'd wear gloves for that. You'd only make that mistake once. Two cups shredded cheddar, plus a third of a cup more for the topping. Two cups browned cubed bacon, well-drained. Five eggs, four for the mix and one beaten, just for the topping. One cup skim milk and one and a half cup of fat-free yogurt. First of all, the dry ingredients should be stirred together, the flour, cornmeal, baking soda and powder, as well as the sugar. Then take the cube butter and add it to the flour mixture, squishing the butter cubes with your fingers as you go. When all are squished, add the chopped jalapenos, two cups of shredded cheddar, and the two cups of bacon. Set aside and then make your wet mix of four eggs, one and a half cups of yogurt, and one cup of skim milk. Mix this together. I only used three cups of wet mix at this time, and then add it to the dry mix. Barely incorporate the wet mix. Leave dry bits here and there. They'll get mixed in as you scoop. The less you mix, the better. That's why grandma's scones are always the best. She has the gentlest touch. Scoop or roll and cut as you choose, but then paint them with a beaten egg and top with a little cracked red pepper and shredded cheddar. Then bake them in your 400 degree oven for about 20 minutes or until lightly browned with a bit of bounce back when touched. Although they are delicious straight from the oven, they're in their glory, toasted or grilled. I've also done these with scallions or chives. I'll try them your way and let me know what you think. Enjoy. I want to tell you about my friend Mike and his Electromagnetic Pinball Museum and Restoration Arcade. It's an all-inclusive place to relax and share anything related to modern pinball, EM pinball, and arcade games. A group of pinball and arcade fans with an addiction to games of all kinds and Lego, too. $10 gets you free play on pinball and arcade games all day. You can find them at 881 Main Street, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, or online at www.electromagneticpinballmuseum.com. Supernatural Folklore of Rhode Island. An open-access master's thesis from Adiola Jean Borghese, The University of Rhode Island, 1956. Today's excerpt... Curses. 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 Certain places have had supposedly miraculous curative powers, and one of these is a spring in North Kingston, which flows westerly into the Pawsacaco Pond, north of Gilbert Stuart's birthplace. This is the headwater of the Pettisquamskit River. In the 18th century, people with poor eyesight came for miles to bathe their eyes in the water of this spring, which is called the eye spring. Certain men have been considered to have great healing powers too, and a celebrated rainwater doctor once established himself in Providence. He advocated a spare diet, rainwater and gruel, and proper exercise, which, according to his own testimony, benefited many. The people finally decided he was a hoax and chased him out of town. These medical curiosities of olden days are closely related to the superstitions of the time. For one who believed that the cat's tail in the ear would cure an earache would very likely be easily led into giving many inanimate objects various kinds of powers, healing or hurting. An opal ring was one of these objects which carried a spell. John Bell, son of a London merchant, came to Newport before the revolution as the king's revenue officer. There he met Mary Antony, a daughter of a Quaker and a staunch patriot, and they fell in love. They were secretly married before his return to England in 1766, and as a parting gift, he gave her an opal ring that had belonged to his mother. She took the ring and wore it secretly in her bosom. Years slipped away, but John was never able to return to his wife. The revolution began, and the engagement off Hattera in 1778, John was killed. And from that moment, Mary wore his ring on her finger, no longer afraid of her father's wrath. But her life began to ebb away. A few months later, as she lay on her deathbed, she presented the ring to a friend with the instructions that it be given to the eldest daughter in the family. In compliance with this request... The ring was bestowed upon the daughter, who died in 1799. Another daughter, who was born in 1800, named Mary, was given the ring. She too met an early death. Wherever the ring was placed, it brought disaster and death. The opal was haunted with sorrow. Although good wishes went with the giving of the opal ring, the ring itself was cursed and no one could escape the spell. There are many tales of curses that were effective for many years. In the early 1750s, in Swansea, Massachusetts, a vagrant fortune teller, Jeffrey Martin, put a curse on Miss Chloe Wilbur, who had made him angry. Your husband will have a withered left arm. Your eldest son will drown in a seething river. She married William Hammond, who had a withered arm and they came to live in North Kingston. The couple had 10 children, all reaching maturity. In 1792, her eldest son was on his way to get a doctor for his wife during a storm when he fell into a river and drowned. When she heard the news, the old mother fell back crying, a curse, you can't forestall the ruling of fate. Curses muttered on a deathbed have such an effect that they last for several generations. In the earliest list of 25-acre men received as inhabitants of Providence are found the names of John Clausen and Benjamin Hendredine. Their families were very intimate, and it was probable were connected by marriage. Clausen was a hired servant of Roger Williams. One night he was attacked from behind a thicket of barbary bushes near the North Burial Ground by a native named Warmin, whom Clausen supposed to be instigated thereto by Herodine. At the first assault, Clawson's chin was split open by a blow with a broad axe, from the effects of which wound he soon afterward died, but not before he had pronounced a strange curse. That he and his posterity might be marked by split chins and haunted by barbary bushes. More than a century later, testimony was collected in proof of the fulfillment of this dying malediction. By this, it appears that the descendants of the murderer were remarkable for the excavated or furrowed chin, which caused the curse of Clausen to be kept in remembrance, and many a quarrel was excited among them at huskings and frolics by mention of the word Barbary bushes because dying curses are so potent, any dying wish had to be carried out in a very strict fashion. As Captain Caleb Green of Apennag lay dying, he told his old servant to take care of the remaining members of the Green family as faithfully as he had when the captain had been in charge of the house. "'I'm going to be buried right up in the plot behind the house "'and can keep an eye on you,' the captain reminded the servant. "'And it would be a good idea if you came up to my grave once a week "'and knock on my stone three times. "'Then you just tell me what you have done wrong during the week, "'or if you have done everything just right, tell me that too.' "'And for the rest of his life, the servant went to the captain's grave "'to carry out the orders of the dying man.'" these dying wishes and curses, as well as the superstitions, rested their case on faith from the evidence of experience, erroneous observation, hearsay, resemblance mistaken for causes, evidence that proves nothing except that superstition sees what it wants to see and believes what it wants to believe. Once again, for joining us at the PG. If you have a question, suggestion, or for the love of Pete, a ghost story, our email is jess at Drop us a line, we'll get right back to you, and we may use your input on the podcast. But until then, I'll meet you right back here next time at the Patuxet General. A something for posterity production, pre recorded in Patuxent.